Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. This week is always one of the biggest of the year at the state capitol as Governor Tom Wolf delivered his budget address. This year's budget was especially noteworthy because the state still doesn't have a spending plan for the current fiscal year, and Wolf took the unusual step of criticizing House Republicans during his speech. It's one of the main topics in Capital Week in Review with WITF's Capital Bureau Chief Mary Wilson. Mary, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Yeah, I'm just curious, and yes. this is something that, um, and we always like to have you on uh, during this portion of the program to provide some insight kind of behind the scenes. You know, the day of the governor's budget address, it's always on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in the media always, you know, we cover the speech. We try to analyze it. We hear from the opposing party what they say about it. But then, like Wednesday or Thursday or so, it kind of dies down. What's it been like at the Capitol? Uh, what's the talk? What's the buzz about this budget in the time since, like Wednesday on? Um, I think um, I, I think the... There was a lot to digest this time last year. Well, you know, in last March when the governor, when we had a first um, a first budget proposal from Governor Tom Wolf, it was his very first proposal on, on state spending. And it was so ambitious um, and um, wide-ranging that it took a long time to digest everything that was in it. Um, so there were these kind of like quick and dirty reports the day of the proposal, and then you saw reporters kind of delving more into the details about what stuff meant. And this year, because it was just such a, um, because it was kind of such a uh, a stern speech, not about actual spending proposals, but just about kind of the state of the debate in the Capitol, there's been far less to delve into. Um kind of the the reality hasn't changed and so things are pretty quiet in the capital um and the outlook for um compromise is no better um so the the budget address usually feels like something to prompt action or prompt more specific conversation or maybe change what the conversation is in the capital and this year it feels like it's changed very little is this your third budget address, or this is my fifth? Oh, really? Covering is it that many? Fifth. Is yeah. that many? I didn't. I didn't realize. So this one, just from what you described, is different than the other four, right? Mm. Um, so what about that? That 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 tone? It's been described as harsh. I, or, wait, I'm sorry. It's not. I don't. I don't know that I was comparing it to Corbett budgets. I I, I don't think I would compare it to Corbett proposals because I can't remember off the top of my head. If we're in a similar situation after, so I don't want to make the comparison to okay. Corbett budgets, right. but okay. I, I think the comparison stands just comparing second Wolf budget to first year Wolf budget. Okay, but you did mention the tone of the governor's uh, budget address, which is very unusual, and in my thirty years or so, I never remember one with a tone like that because uh, usually with these kind of things there's some conciliatory language used. Mm-hmm. No one likes to hear boos or cat calls or anything like that. And there was that, this, you know, Republicans said that they didn't like being lectured. And, you know, I, the day afterwards, I spoke with Senator Costa, who's the Democratic, the the minority chairman in the Senate, or excuse me, the majority leader, minority leader, I'll get this straight, minority leader in the Senate, and Dave Reed, who's the majority leader in the House, Republicans, uh, and, you know, asked a question, but I'll ask you the same question of your observations, uh, that this doesn't sound like a good place to start as far as negotiations go because of that tone. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's it's really hard for me to assess the back and forth from both sides about one side being out of bounds with its tone. Those claims are a dime a dozen, and um, it's it's hard for me to imagine a tone that would be appropriate when the state is seven months into an impasse. Um, schools are poised to um, run out of money. Um, soon, various agencies, because of blue line vetoes, are poised to run out of money. You know, so you've got you've got people who are in um, uh, you've got agencies um, and and public institutions that are in various states of financial distress or let's just say stress because of this situation, and they anger different contingencies of lawmakers. You know, the Democrats are really bothered. Um, probably more so Democrats are really bothered by the school districts being in this amount of stress. Republicans, um, you know, those concerns become inflamed when rural hospitals are going without their state money or um, agricultural programs are going without their state money, state corrections going without its state money. Um, It's very hard for me to, in an you know, in a in an even-handed way, vet claims of just tone. Um, what we can say is that the tone on both sides is quite vitriolic. Mm. Uh, is there anything, maybe one or two things, that really stuck out to you? Uh, and I'm not talking about the tone. I'm talking about uh, the actual budget itself. What the governor is asking for. Um, well, not so much in his speech that stuck out to me because the speech was, you know, you know, had zero details as far as I, I can recall right now about what he's actually proposing. Um, you know, the, you know, the kind of thing that that's interesting to me is that property tax relief was a major piece of the proposal that Wolf rolled out last year, um, and an interesting way to try to get the kinds of tax increases he was seeking property tax. Um, relief and and reform or elimination, as as some lawmakers want to see, is going to require some sort of tax shift. Um, And so you could see, you you know, you saw a governor trying to position his proposals in a way that it would appeal to Republicans who are hostile to tax increases. Um, So that was that was an interesting move this year. It's it's I don't see it in the budget. Um, So instead, it's just a bunch of tax increases that are you know, um, on their face, like pretty threatening to to um, a growing cohort of conservative Republicans in the legislature. And Governor, for the second year in a row, is asking for a tax, a severance tax on natural gas drillers. Uh, and one of the things that's a little bit different this year is that uh, Republicans actually held a hearing, actually talked about some of the proposals that are out there. Uh, and, you know, and I hate to ask you to speculate, but have you heard any talk about being Republicans being more open to uh, a severance tax this year? I don't know. The severance tax is so, you know, it's kind of it's always there. You know, people say that there's going to be support for it. Sometimes it gets really close. Sometimes, you know, I remember a couple years ago during the budget process, the Senate majority leader was saying that a severance tax might be required. They were drafting a severance tax because they thought the revenue would be necessary to close the state budget. You know, what what I'm getting at is that it's kind of the, the, the ghost that never goes away. Um, and so... Yes, lawmakers are talking about it, and maybe that means it stands a chance. But um, you know, there's been there's been no real movement toward it. So, mm. 
So what's next? I mean, we are in uncharted waters when it comes to uh, not having a, a budget for the current fiscal year and then you know, a, a new budget that has been proposed? Sure, it's a great question. Well, budgets are a process. The next part of the process is that um, lawmakers are going to be uh, going into budget hearings, this somewhat lengthy like parade of hearings where the appropriations committees in the House and the Senate sit down with each and every agency and talk about, okay, what do you need? Um, it's it's hard to know how, how those hearings are going to go this year. Uh, there, some of us are speculating that maybe they're going to dwell on the spending that's already ha- that's already been authorized by the administration to date. Um, Republicans uh, are not happy. Uh, they they do not think that the administ- some Republicans do not think that the administration has the authority to um, uh, to to allow some of the spending that's happened yeah, I gather in the past year. Call, they've called it all, going as far as saying almost illegal. Well, I mean, everything's, you know, well, challenge it. I mean, right. listen, I, okay, that's fine, but, <laughs> you know, challenge it then. Um, so it hasn't been deemed illegal, but, okay, they've said that. Um, the, the, the next thing, the next part of the non-process of this, but wrapping up kind of the, the unfinished business of the budget is that um, when the governor line-item vetoed, when he partially rejected a budget sent to him in late December. He um, it, it was a move, um, he said, meant to um, balance a budget that was out of balance. The budget was passed without a revenue package tied to it. Um, and, and it was also meant to kind of force the negotiators back to the table. Um, so he, he, in doing so, he really frustrated Republicans. He, um, many think he targeted programs that would you know, that would get the attention of Republican lawmakers in particular. I was talking about the rural hospitals. I was talking about prisons. Prisons, yeah. Um, um, that's probably too cynical a take by half, but um, but there it is. And so lawmakers have started lining up bills to replenish those funds for those different groups that were lined and vetoed. One of those bills that you're talking about uh, would fund the prisons, and there was talk that the governor would veto that. Where does that stand? Um, I, I don't I don't know where it is in the ping-ponging back and forth between the legislature. I think it passed the House and we'll go back to the Senate. I'm not sure about that. Um, don't quote me. But yes, I've, I've read that as well, that the governor's office plans to veto it. And, you know, the argument here is that we'll pass the revenue package to, you know, this is not a complete budget if there's no revenue package tied to it. Um, so, so I believe that's the argument against mm. against it from the administration's point of view. When I ask you what happens next, uh, you like everyone else in Harrisburg, Blanche, yeah, you really don't know because uh, I mean, when I spoke with Dave Reed, the uh, House Majority Leader, the other day, he said that what he would like to see, what House Republicans would like to see, is wrap up 2015-16 and then move on to uh, the new budget that has been proposed, but. You know, there are so many things that are similar in the budgets. Uh, And in the back of your mind, you have to know that, okay, even though this is what we're dealing with in 2015-2016, this is what the governor has also proposed. It just seems like it would be a very difficult, and I'm not asking you anything to, you know, state an opinion, but I'm just kind of putting it out there that this would be a difficult process that uh, uh, as messed up, if I could use that terminology, as it has has been for the past eight months. Well, now we have something new entered into it that uh, will make it even more difficult. I think realistically, the biggest thing that changes is that the whole is bigger. The You know, the deficit that lawmakers were going to be forced to wrangle 
is is now larger um and the the wolf administration had argued for thinking about the budget on a two-year basis anyway so trying to plan for any shortfall um um, in advance, um, a year before it was, you know, it landed in lawmakers' laps. Um, the fact that now we are we are in that year um, or approaching that year, it just means that the that the holes lawmakers have to fill, and by holes I mean like the shortfalls in you know what the state has to spend and what it needs to spend and what it wants to spend. Um, that that, that holes, those holes are getting larger. Uh, in fact, that has been one of Governor Wolf's uh, justifications for increasing spending and uh, looking for revenue enhancers or tax increases, is right. that a structural deficit. Uh, very early on in the Wolf administration, I don't know if you would get a lot of Republicans who, or find a lot of Republicans who would point to that and say, yeah, we have to do something about that. That is not the case today. Uh, most Republicans, or at least the, the ones I see quoted and talking about, and you tell me if this is your observation as well, that most Republicans realize that there is a structural deficit and it is something that has to be dealt with. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, but we don't know, we we don't have um, a list of ways of, of fixing those, of fixing that deficit. And that's where the real difference of opinion is, is that the administration wants to use tax increases to do that in part mm-hmm. where Republicans don't want to raise taxes. Right, right. And, and so then, you know, the follow-up question to Republicans is, well, how do you fill that deficit? And for years, we have talked about how the the legislature's modes of filling things in the short term and in the long term are, are kind of running out of steam. You know, the easy gambling money is getting harder to come by, you know, by just tweaking gambling regulations or increasing slots or, um, uh, you know, there's been talk of online gaming. Um, uh, so the, the, the legislature's ability to, to find money by doing things like that or by doing these, um, you know, what have been derided as one-time fixes, accounting maneuvers in the budget to find, you know, ch- change in the couch cushions, um, th- those are those are um, doing less and less good when it comes to balancing the state's budget. You know, I will say, this is something I talk about with one of my colleagues in the Capitol Newsroom all the time. The last budget briefing that we got from the outgoing, um, former Governor Corbett's outgoing budget director um, was this like, you know, his budget briefings throughout the years became increasingly like come to Jesus moments where he would say, we have cleaned out the cupboards. We are now dismantling the cupboards. We have no more, you know, there, there's no more money to be squeezed out of this budget. And one of the things that the Republican, you know, anti-tax governor's budget director said on his like on his last budget briefing to reporters was we have gotten to the point where we have wrung out all the potential cuts we can from this budget. The people who have the power to cut spending in this building, he's talking about lawmakers, have lost the appetite to make further cuts. I mean, that was coming from a Republican. So, so to me, that was a very powerful moment. Like, well, as much as we as as much as we would like to not increase taxes or we would like to cut our way um, to a zero to, to, to no deficit, is it still possible? Um, and the reason I ask that is because I haven't seen the plan of someone saying this deficit can be obliterated by cuts X, Y, and Z. You know, I haven't seen that comprehensive plan. 
so obviously that was uh, big news this week and uh, will continue to be big news. The other big uh, story that uh, we followed had to do with Kathleen Kane. I mean, we every week we could talk about the, the attorney general and uh, what's going on uh, with with her legal situation and uh, investigations around it. Uh, the, this past uh, week there was a, when was it, Wednesday, Big Day was pointed to as a state Senate committee that uh, was looking at a little-known part of uh, the state constitution to possibly remove her from office. And I think a lot of people on the outside, with all the negative news surrounding the attorney general, and the news from this committee, had assumed that that was a done deal, that that was going the to happen. Vote. Right, the mm-hmm. removal from, uh, of Attorney General Kane. Well, it did not happen. Mm-hmm. What happened? Um, it did not have a two-thirds majority in the, in the Senate. Um, a process that began in a very bipartisan manner um, started to look increasingly like it broke down along party lines. Um, the investigation into whether Kane should be removed by this um, seldom used provision known as direct address in the state constitution, um, that investigation started off with like the full-throated backing of you know, Democratic senators working side by side with Republican senators. And by the end of that process, um, only Republican senators were talking about, you know, the findings of the report and um, um, suggesting a vote, um, uh, you know, on on the on the matter. Um, So so it was it became you know, it's hard to deny with a largely party line vote um, that ultimately failed to, you know, call for Kane's removal. It's hard to deny that there was, you know, that it was a partisan issue. When did it become partisan? Because you're right, uh, when you described it as, uh, if anything, where the two parties were working together, this was one of those occasions. And there were only, there was one Democrat, one Republican who crossed party lines with their their votes. When did it become partisan? I don't know. I think, I I don't know if it, if it, I I don't know for sure that it didn't start off partisan. And I don't know for sure that it ended partisan. It certainly appears that there was bipartisan support for at least considering removal. Um, and then, you know, it, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but, you know, by the end, Democrats were not convinced and Republicans, you know, were convinced. Possibly, you know, actually, now that I think about it, you know, g- former Governor Ed Rendell, you know, Democratic heavyweight, came to the committee that was investigating this question and said, don't go down this route. It's been used just once, and it was like uh, over a hundred years ago. Um, don't, don't don't go down this route when you have a perfectly fine process that has precedent, recent precedent. Try impeachment if you want to get rid of her because of misconduct. Go for impeachment. Don't don't go down this road when it's sure to end in a court challenge from Kane. And, and just for background purposes, what the Senate committee was looking at is whether she could stay in office Thank without you. a law yes. license. Yes, correct. Um, and and so I think, I think it became harder for, you know, it was kind of like the dog whistle for, not so subtle dog whistle for, Repu- for, excuse me, for Democrats who are hearing this top Democrat, you know, in their state saying, this is a bad idea, you know, drag, there be dragons here. Um, so I, I, I certainly think that, that you can't ignore 
the influence of Rendell's appeal to Democrats, you know, and to senators in this whole story. So impeachment, uh, way back when, uh, Representative Daryl Metcalf, maybe a year ago or so, a little over a year, was talking about impeachment, and a lot of people mm-hmm. looked at it and said, oh, that's just very partisan. It's not looking that way now. Uh, so where do we stand with that? So the House has, um, the, the same day the Senate voted on the removal Provision: The House um, voted to begin an investigation to see if Kane is it's the the, techn- the the terming is liable to impeachment for misbehavior in office. Misbehavior in office is the the phrase used in the state constitution. As <laughs> somebody said to me, a phrase you could drive an eighteen wheeler through. It's like it's so broad. So what lawmakers have to do is decide. Okay, well, what? How do we define misbehavior in office for this? And um, and and what do we know about? about Kane's conduct that could rise to that level. If I haven't said it already, um, Kane is standing, is, is awaiting trial in August for charges um, of perjury and other counts that she allegedly se- uh, leaked secret investigative material to a newspaper to get back at, a, at detractors and then lied about it under oath. Um, and um, so so that's the that's where the um, claims of misconduct or, or poor behavior in office might stem from. Would an impeachment vote, now you mentioned it would take a two-thirds majority in the Senate, and they didn't get that, mm-hmm. about four votes short. Um, okay, what were we going to say? Oh, no, no, go, go, go. Uh, wh- what about impeachment? I, I don't I don't remember the the what, what kind of vote is needed for See, impeachment. See, I was thinking it was just a, a simple majority, okay. a simple majority in the House. So uh, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Mary Wilson, thank you very much. There's a lot to think about, a lot on uh, your plate, a lot on the state's plate. Uh, over the next few weeks. Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It is WITF's annual Roses campaign just a few days before Valentine's Day, and I'm joined by WITF's multimedia news director, Tim Lambert. Tim, I see that uh, you have removed your ski hat. You must be getting uh, Tim very early on. You could tell that uh, it's cold outside because Tim all bundled up with a, with a sweatshirt and a ski hat on. Well, That's now right. you've removed that in the studio. I have. Th- things have warmed up. It has warmed up a little bit here in the studio. Absolutely, it's warmed up uh, out in the WITF uh, uh, Volunteer Central Pledge Central. Calls are coming in. We've had a great response so far. We're approaching one hundred twelve thousand dollars overall for the goal uh, for this campaign. Um, uh, and the goal is just to keep on going and see how many messages of love we can send throughout the, the country. And if you want to send roses to anybody in the country, um, you have to do it by noon today. So the clock is ticking less than three hours, two and a half hours to go to make that happen, to send roses to uh, someone in uh, in another state that, that is important to you. Maybe it's an old college roommate. Maybe it's an old friend. Maybe it's a family member you haven't talked to in a while, but you want to let them know you're thinking of them. And uh, you can do that by going to WITF.org slash roses or call 1-800-233-9483. And what we're talking about, Scott, is a half dozen red roses, rainbow roses, can go to someone for for a $100 contribution in support of WITF, a dozen red or rainbow roses for a contribution of $125. And if you want to limit that delivery to uh, central Pennsylvania, you can do two dozen red roses in a vase for $250. And for $10 extra, just $10, you get this great 10-inch plush bear that's been making the rounds around the building today. You can uh, check out his adventures on our Facebook page. He has shoveled snow for us today. He's worked <laughs> in the studio. He's answered phones. He's everywhere. He, he he's really is. Man. 
He is. You know, I, I when I came in today, I was like, okay, who put the bear over there? Because he's moving around so he much. He for... was checking out the art in the in the atrium here. So, I, I'm about to say he. Do we know it is a he? But we're assuming it's a he. I'm just going to go with he. For All now. right, we'll go over. I a think he, there's a she the, somewhere too, but yeah, they're split up. For he now. he is a a bear of many interests. That's for that's for he, sure. He is, and uh... you know, Tim, something you just reminded me. I thought it was a, that's a that's a great idea which you just uh, suggested. Uh, you know, maybe surprising someone that you haven't talked with in a while or haven't seen in a while, because we do send to all 50 states. That's right. And, Till noon. I mean, we're up to like 36 states now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, t- the clock is ticking. So if you'd like to get with, maybe there is that college roommate or, uh, you know, a family member who has moved to the West Coast or somewhere far away that you haven't spoken to in a while that uh, you would like to, maybe an old girlfriend, a boyfriend. You know, something like that. You never know. You never know. And uh, that's a great idea. So go to WITF.org or call 1-800-233-9483. How are we doing so far today, state-wise? Do you... Uh, we've added one state. Uh, let's see. But so far, roses are going to Florida, Illinois, New Jersey, West Virginia. West Virginia was the newest state we've added to the list. So, um, yeah, it's uh, and that's just the phone uh the phone contributions we haven't seen the online contributions yet because they're coming in so heavy and it takes a little while to get them into the system but uh we're moving right along and you know if you want to surprise someone send them roses for tomorrow you know they're not expecting it on the 13th that's right the 14th that's right. is when they're like hmm when did that, when's that doorbell ring <laughs> and I, I don't know what's happening and here. i can't get away from the weather this weekend either there's, that would be a nice surprise when you open the door and there's a delivery a blast of cold air <laughs> a blast of cold air but then it warms your heart with those roses you know Tim, we talk so much about the roses themselves because uh, it is, uh, you know, one of our, our, our best campaigns. When I say best campaigns, meaning that uh, the, the listeners, you know, the WITF, you, the listener out there, enjoys it so much. And uh, we have such a good time with talking about it. But we have to remind everyone that uh, this goes to WITF as well, that this is a way to support the programs that you hear on WITF. Absolutely. And this is a, this is a chance to, to put you in a win-win-win situation. You get to send roses to someone special. And uh, so you are on the receiving end of uh, a joyous person when they get those roses because they're going to text you. They're going to call you. Maybe they'll message you on Facebook. Maybe in tears. They might even tweet it out. Look at the roses I got That's thanks right. to, you know, so-and-so. So, <laughs> you, you know, you get that joy. The person who gets the roses absolutely has to have some joy. And you are supporting WITF, which makes us smile as well. So it's a it's a triple win Uh in, in horse racing parlance, it's uh, what, I can't think of, of it. <laughs> Quinella and uh, trifecta. Trifecta. There That's you what go. I'm thinking of. I've been I've been on the air too long today. So go for the trifecta. So one more time, it is, and we know, and I, I always ask the smart talk, uh, smart talk listeners, you, the smart talk listener, to come through for us uh, during the campaign. Go to witf.org or call one 9483 So I have don't throw out the I know. I, I have so many 800 numbers I have to take care of. <laughs> Tim, we'll talk to you again in a few minutes. Yep, you got it, Scott. Speaking of hearts, as we are with Valentine's Day, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, it's not uh, 
it's not a surprise that uh, American Heart Month is during the month of February when you see so many of uh, not drawings of real hearts, but the kind of heart that, uh, you know, we see and we associate with Valentine's Day. But uh, it is American Heart uh, Month, and uh, according to the Centers for Disease Control, about 1.5 million Americans suffer heart attacks or strokes each year. Some 610,000 die of heart disease every year. It's the leading cause of death in the country by far. February is American Heart Month. It's a good time to remind everyone to take care of their heart, but also look at innovations in heart disease treatment. Today, the focus is going to be some of those innovations in heart surgery, also in the structural heart. Joining us is Dr. Hamel Gata, who is uh, with Pinnacle Health's Cardiovascular Institute. Dr. Gata, welcome to the program. Scott, glad to be here. You probably get tired of, uh, during Valentine's Day and during the month of February, everyone uh, with you know, and I'm making the little heart drawing and uh, <laughs> that all the time that that. But I, I guess it's a good way to remind people that they have to take care of their hearts. Yeah. I mean, it's the most important organ in the body. Not only is it responsible for longevity, but it's responsible for quality of life. And in the specific arena that we're going to talk about later, uh, I think that that is really a critical feature of what the heart can do. I saw a chart. And uh, this chart displayed advances that we've made in heart surgery and heart disease treatment over the past 100 years. Since the 1980s, there have been three times as many innovations, advances made in the previous 70 years, according to this chart. What's different in the last 30 years? Well, I think that you have an interplay with private industry that has really been just completely remarkable and and unlike any other field that I've been around. Uh, we have medical developments uh, in pharma pharmaceuticals that have been tremendous. But I would say that the most enthusiasm has come over the last 10 years in the medical devices arena uh, with regards to cardiovascular care and how we've been able to treat it using very minimally invasive techniques to produce mortality benefits and improvements in quality of life. Now, those innovations we're going to talk about a little more specifically later, a lot of them have to do with non-invasive techniques and procedures used to repair a heart. Uh, but let's get back to pharmaceuticals. What are some of the pharmaceuticals that we've seen uh, in the last 10 years or so develop that, uh, that help with heart health? So I would say that a, a crux of what we've done is gone into the primary prevention arena. So preventing you from having any kind of cardiovascular event at baseline. A lot of that involves control of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, the statins, the statin phenomenon, and what it's been able to do to life expectancy in this country, to cardiovascular morbidity in this country has been nothing short of a miracle. Now, statins, you're talking mostly about cholesterol and related related uh, illnesses? That's absolutely correct. And, and not only are statins useful for cholesterol management with regards to prevention of heart disease, but they have anti-inflammatory effects that have seen to be beneficial in an array of different disease processes. Yeah, I mean, whenever there is a new drug developed or a new procedure, we often hear about it in the media. Maybe it's secondhand through one of uh, the, the trade uh, publications like New England Journal of Health and that kind of thing. But uh, I remember a few years ago hearing one that uh, there were colleagues of yours who said that, and I say colleagues, meaning across the country, uh, who said that people should be taking statins no matter what, even if they don't have high cholesterol, because there are so many benefits to it. I would say there's a large camp in my profession that 
their mantra is put it in the water. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was part of the article is is, is put it in the water. Why? What, what the statins, when you say there's an infl- anti-inflammatory uh, inflammatory, uh, effect, what, what do they do? So the real thing about inflammation is it's a systemic process. It involves numerous organs, not just the heart, but the kidneys, the liver, different organs that you have, the brain even, um, where if you have inflammation, an inflammatory process, it impedes the work of that organ and impedes efficient work of that organ. And so to have a potent medication that affects those inflammatory processes can hypothetically and actually very practically lead to improvement in many disease processes. We're just on the cusp of we're not even on the cusp. Uh, we're, we're, we're pre-cusp as far as figuring out uh, the benefits of statins going forward. And I, I think the next 10 years are going to be a remarkable era, not just in the cholesterol arena for statins, but just to prove the other what we call pleiotropic or other ancillary effects of statins. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk. I'm going to wait to talk about the devices and some of the innovations we made there few minutes later when we talk about the, like three in particular that, uh, that you're working on. Uh, generally speaking... Are Americans' hearts healthier today than in the past? It's a loaded question, and and some of it has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of these technologies that we're talking about, not, not just the treatment technologies, but also diagnostic uh, and imaging technologies, have been able to pinpoint problems with people earlier on. And so as far as health is concerned, we are able to prolong life, obviously from a mortality benefit standpoint, but also preserve quality of life by diagnosing some very debilitating conditions related to cardiovascular health sooner. Uh, well, like with, what? So, for example, uh, coronary artery disease. Uh, you know, I mean, you could maybe experience some very, very subtle symptoms, and in the past, it may not have been readily discernible given technology at the time. But now, given the precision of our stress testing, given the clinical risk scores that we use, taking someone to the catheterization lab, doing uh, invasive uh, assessments in the catheterization lab to prove to us that the coronary artery disease is actually real, what we call obstructive, and then that leading to treatment with stents and bypass surgery earlier on, I mean, that is a tremendous innovation in the field. The other thing I will say, though, to kind of counter that, uh, you say, are Americans' hearts healthier? Well, uh, I would say that we are probably the unhealthiest that we've been from a societal standpoint than than what I can remember, at least looking back epidemiologically, except for one thing, the drive to reduce smoking and for people to cut that out of their daily regimen, that's made huge strides in cardiovascular medicine. So I will say it's kind of a mixed picture with regards to that. I mean, you still have your supersized soft drinks, people drinking a tremendous amount of calories, eating saturated fats, things that they know are bad for them, and it's common sense that they're bad for them. Trying to limit that in their diet is kind of the next play that Americans really have to focus on, is to reduce these horrible things that are just widespread out there, easy access, cheap. And so that kind of uh, formula, it, it makes them so accessible that it's, it's very tough for people to avoid consumption of, of things that they know are bad for them. But education is better, though. I mean, everyone, the day doesn't go by 
where you don't hear someone say, at least I, I this is my observation, and I've done it myself, is I know I shouldn't eat this, but ah, I'm okay to do it right now. Uh, because people know that that soda that they're drinking, that fruit juice that's uh, full of sugar, uh, you know, that fast food, uh, you know, hamburger, uh, you know, pizza, whatever. Uh, we know the foods. That's another thing. We know what, what is unhealthy for us, but we do it anyway. So has that education helped at all? I think to some degree it can and will, and I think that as healthier options are made more available and that education piece is more harped on, I think that we're going to see a change with regards to, to diet and, 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 and health risk uh, with regards to, to cardiovascular disease. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Hamel Gada. He's with Pinnacle Health's Cardiovascular Institute. We're talking about heart disease, but we're going to be talking mostly about innovations in the treatment of heart disease and heart health. Uh, in fact, I wanted to think, you know, I was talking about whether uh, Americans' hearts are healthier today. What is the most common problem with the heart? I would say that coronary artery disease remains the the number one uh, issue, not just with the heart, but I think as we age and putting cancer to the side because that's a jumble of different organs and different disease processes, if you're going to isolate one thing that Americans have to be cognizant of as they age, it's the risk of developing obstructive coronary artery disease. Mm. So when do you resort, resort to surgery? So we resort to surgery or stenting procedures when we define coronary artery disease as having an impairment on the longevity of life, but also if we feel that surgery or stenting can preserve quality of life and decrease future morbidity from other conditions like heart failure. Uh, when, you know, when I, we were... Uh, Talking about uh, for, uh, having you on the program, I was mm -hmm. told that uh, uh, one of your main focuses is the structural health, heart. And I have to admit that I was not familiar with that uh, term. Now, my research has shown that uh, it, it encompasses a lot, but how would you define the structural heart? The heart is complex, and I, we were just talking about um, anti-inflammatories and, and coronary artery disease. Uh, an entire different uh, way of thinking about the heart is actually as a three-dimensional structure that beats, that has chambers, that has valves, that has pressures and velocities that drive through it, that creates circulation so that your organs receive ample oxygen, you're able to do the things that you like to do on a daily basis. Structural heart disease, in short, is basically are basically targeted uh, therapies or a field that encompasses targeted therapies that are directed at the actual physical structure of the heart, so the chambers and the valves of the heart itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to talk about three that uh, you've been working on lately, three uh, innovations in the treatment of heart disease. Uh, one's transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Now, that sounds like a lot, but uh, if you could put it in simple terms, Absolutely. So the aortic valve, I would say, is the most important valve uh, in the body. Uh, the reason why I say that is because the aortic valve is connection between the heart and the rest of the body. The aortic valve sits in the aorta, which is the major artery that comes off the left ventricle, which is the main pumping chamber of the heart. And you can imagine that that valve closes and opens millions and millions of times during your life. And because of all of that opening and closing 
lot of the turbulent flow. You can develop calcium as you age. In fact, 10% of the population between 80 to 89 in this country has a condition called aortic stenosis. And that's a narrowing of the aortic valve. Now, as you age and you have other health conditions, you can become high risk for surgery. And so because it's a mechanical problem, there are no medications that can be directed to reverse or cure aortic stenosis. It's something that needs a mechanical solution. So traditionally, this particular procedure, aortic valve replacement, has been a very morbid procedure involving large sternotomies, very invasive ways of replacing a valve. In other words, surgery. Basically. Traditional yeah, surgery. Traditional you're, surgery. You're cutting and... That's exactly right. it. And you're stopping the heart and you're putting people on heart-lung bypass machines and you have prolonged stays afterwards. We've progressed in such a dynamic manner over the last 15 years in this field where now we are able to replace valves using small needle punctures in the area of the upper thigh or groin, accessing the femoral artery, which has a direct connection to the aorta, which is where the aortic valve sits. And we're able to actively replace an aortic valve with someone not requiring any kind of mechanical ventilation, no breathing machine, no heart-lung bypass, no heart stoppage. Our average patient can leave the hospital within two to three days. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that. so you're basically going in at in the leg, in the thigh, and going to the heart. How do you do that? I mean, is there a camera on the end? Uh, how do you do that? It's basically x-ray technology is what okay. we typically use. And so we're able to plan the case up front. We use CAT scans. I reconstruct these CAT scans. I like to tell patients that 90% of the procedure is done before they actually hit the table. And so all of the planning is done. The CAT scan is read. I know what size of valve I want to put in. I know the approach that I want to take. And I work with a team of highly accomplished individuals. The beauty of this field is that I'm an interventional cardiologist. So my training is medical background. So I went to medical school. I did an internal medicine residency, then a cardiovascular fellowship, and then an interventional cardiology fellowship. My closest partner is a cardiothoracic surgeon an actual heart surgeon who's done years and years of this, Dr. Mubashar Mumtaz. And he's a fabulous, fabulous surgeon with excellent technical skill. And having him there to kind of um, bounce ideas off of, to help innovate and develop this procedure has been a godsend. And so with us kind of in the room with our other team members uh, contributing to the case. We've been able to do tremendous things in this in this field, and it create a very, very minimally invasive option for people who have very crippling disease processes. Anyone who has had surgery, one of the things that the surgeon tells you or, you know, your medical provider is that there always is a risk with surgery. I imagine that that risk is even riskier, if I could put it that way, uh, with heart surgery when, you know, you're stopping the heart, as you said, you know, putting on heart-lung uh, machinery. Uh, so is this a less risky uh, procedure since you're not cutting, you're not doing all those things? I would say initially, you know, the way that this procedure had to roll out is we had to trial it in inoperable patients, i.e. people that were not candidates for surgery. And the high in, risk as you described them. Yeah, actually actually even even more than that, inoperable. Okay. So we're talking about extremely high risk. Then we got down to high risk candidates. Now we're doing intermediate risk candidates and shortly we'll be opening up a trial for low risk candidates for this particular procedure where they're gonna get randomized in one to one fashion to open heart surgery versus this transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And we'll see. But the preliminary data from at least the intermediate response 
population, and certainly the the data that we've acquired from the high risk and inoperable po- populations are very heartwarming to me. You know, for for lack of a better term, do you use heartwarming often? Uh, quite you? quite often, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean it's 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 an amazing technology, and I'm just so passionate about it. And I think we can get really great outcomes in all sorts of different patients. Do you use anesthesia? Yeah, well, you know, the anesthesia is limited to the fact that for most of our patients, we don't really. We don't want them to be completely knocked out for the procedure because that impairs recovery. We want these people to be fully functional within a few hours of having the procedure done, i.e. walking around. You know, I mean, we want them to have a return to quality of life as rapidly as possible. So short of just putting them in twilight they're still going to be breathing on their own. It's not like getting completely knocked out for a procedure, and, and you don't necessarily need to have that done in order to get this done safely. All right, I want to move on to another one, a mitral clip. What is that? Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's correct, yeah. Okay. So that, that's uh, it's a percutaneous mitral valve repair. And so what that means is, again, needle-based technology where we're able to go in with a series of catheters and devices to actually put a clip in where this valve, the mitral valve, which sits above the aortic valve in the heart causes a lot of leakage in some patients, and then that can lead to a whole host of issues with regards to shortness of breath, feeling extremely fatigued. And if you're a high-risk candidate for surgery, open-heart surgery, to fix the mitral valve, then this could be a procedure you could be indicated for. And basically, the purpose of the clip is to reduce the severity of the regurgitation or the leakage and to, again, restore quality of life in a patient population that wouldn't necessarily have options otherwise. And with both these things, we're talking about less less invasion. That, uh, you know, it's unbelievable. Probably if you told someone 30 years ago that you'd be able to do heart surgery without anesthesia, they would say, no, no way that can happen. And, and ablation, there's another term. What is ablation what you described earlier with the, the going from the femur? What is ablation? No, no, no. So, so uh, ablation is a little bit different. So, so um, ablation is actually an electrophysiologic procedure that's directed towards atrial fibrillation. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm discussing basically are catheter-based procedures that are very similar to getting a heart catheterization, oh, okay. but a little bit more of an ordeal because of the size of IVs that are involved, that sort of thing. But I would, I would view them both separately. You also are involved in a steep, uh, a deep study mm-hmm. of uh, atrial fibrillation, and that's exactly what you're getting at. And so, the deep trial is done uh, by uh, Dr. Mumtaz and Dr. Link, uh, cardiothoracic surgeon and electrophysiologist at our institutions. At our institution, and these are tremendous, tremendous physicians who are able to uh, actually fix atrial fibrillation, are able to make it go away, and to actually exclude the area of the heart where clot can reside, which is the main issue with people who have atrial fibrillation. You see, people who have atrial fibrillation, their heart fibrillates, meaning it makes no real sensible movement. It just quivers. And by and the, you can actually feel that. You can feel it. Yes. You can feel it in your chest. You can get very fatigued. There are all sorts of things that can happen to you. And because of that quivering, you can develop blood clots in certain parts of the heart, and one of the major areas is called the left atrial appendage. And as part of this trial, what they can do is they can go and they can burn out the atrial fibrillation, and then where this stroke risk resides in left atrial appendage, they can put a small clip on it and exclude it. And so there's no more clot that can be transited to the body. So ablation is basically burning it. Correct. Okay. So, you know, one of the questions, and we talk often about cost, We've made these uh, advances. Uh, 
and you're not actually cutting in many cases here where you know it's less invasive does it cost less because of that no in fact quite the opposite really? and so uh, most of these technologies cost more and the onus is on us to define cost effectiveness in this partic- in these particular patient populations so a lot of work has been done in this arena. I actually have an MBA. I do a lot of health economics work. Uh, so this is like a, a sweet spot for me. What I'll tell you is that it's much more complex than just looking at life and death. I keep harping back to quality of life, quality of life. And quality of life is seen as a trade-off. So say I have severe heart failure and you're in perfect health. question that could be asked to me is what fraction of a year of perfect health would I trade off for a year of living with my debilitating heart failure? And that is the concept of utility that is so central to defining something that is economically responsible. So cost is one part of it, but this whole aspect of quality life, quality of life enters into the picture. And for us, when we're considering these patients for as far as these high-priced um, investments, these, these transcatheter aortic valve replacements, these mitroclip procedures, we have to take this into consideration. Is there quality of life to preserve? By doing these procedures, are we going to salvage quality of life moving forward? That's a critical question. Fascinating conversation, and uh, it's just amazing the things that uh, we're do- doing even here locally and, and across the country. Dr. Gata with Pinnacle Health's Cardiovascular Institute, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, speaking of hearts, now we're going to go the other way here. Tim Lambert is here. And, uh, Tim, fascinating conversation. Absolutely. And maybe I'll go a little bit backwards here. Doctor, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, in that we've been talking so m- much about the, the heart and, uh, uh, you know, as it relates to Valentine's Day and romance and mm-hmm. all that. Uh, maybe Snuggles. We'll go little, me, yeah. Don't bring that up again. (laughs) But uh, go a little bit backwards here in that we want you to realize that uh, this is not only, uh, you know, a gift for a loved one out there or, you know, making someone uh, happy this this Valentine's Day, but it also is supporting WITF, the kind of conversation you just heard here today about. I just found that very fascinating, that conversation. Yeah, the whole show. I mean, uh, Mary Wilson, uh, who works each and every day at the state capitol, the only uh, one of the only radio reporters, if not the only reporter from the region who does that. Uh, and then she was providing some excellent insight into what, where things stand with the budget right now and, and where both sides are coming from. I mean, Scott, we've kind of joked all week long that it, this is a perfect opportunity for some detente between the two sides. Send roses to each other. Go across the aisle, Democrats to Republicans, Republicans to Democrats, the governor's office to the House GOP. And vice versa. Uh, make those contributions. And, 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 you know, you don't have to be angry all the time. It's Everyone's talking about how angry the electorate is and how people are, you know. I see a great show of support of people who, who want to uh, put a smile on someone's face. All week long, we've heard from people. Uh, we're over the $120,000 mark now. Uh, some of those online entries starting to come in. Uh, tremendous show of support. So uh, people uh, just want to put a smile on someone's face. But as Scott said, you're also supporting what we do each and every day. You're supporting the great conversations you hear on Smart Talk uh, that go behind uh, just the, 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 you know, when 
people scratch the surface of a topic. Scott goes uh, deeper than that to, to, to really explain it to you and, and uh, tell you uh, some things you might not know. Uh, a fascinating conversation in the last half hour or so. Um, but you can make that contribution now at WITF.org slash roses. This is your last chance to support Smart Talk during this Roses campaign. That's WITF.org slash roses or 1-800-233-9483. Show your support for That's Someone Special and for WITF. And Tim, quickly, uh, there is a deadline uh, of noon today for, for some people to, uh, they want to, it's, it's, it's a noteworthy one. Yeah, exactly. If you want to send those roses anywhere in the U.S., you have until noon. So you have two hours to get that done at WITF.org slash roses or 1-800-233-9483. Tim Lambert, I'll talk to you a little bit later. You got it, Scott. Coming up on Monday, it is President's Day. We're going to talk about some presidential history on Monday's program. Uh, another fascinating conversation, so be sure to tune in and have a good weekend.